As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hi, this is Leanne Watson, executive producer of Open Record. Before we begin this episode, we wanted to warn you, we're talking about some pretty graphic information that you might find disturbing. So if there's kids around, you may want to listen to this episode at another time. When you say 35 years, it's easy to just hear, oh, it was a long time. How long? It was a lifetime. It was so long ago that for many of Tracy's family members, they died not knowing who the killer was. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. We're investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On this episode, a cold case solved. 35 years after a Port Washington teenager was found raped and beaten to death, police say they've identified her killer. Hello, everyone. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire here with Jenna Sachs. Hi. And Brian Paulson. Hello. So we're starting off today with a question. Where were you 35 years ago? I'll take that one first because I'm probably the only one here with a story. So 35 years ago. That I'm is trying correct. to think now. This is I was, 2019. I'm 35. Just, well, but 30, well, okay. Just for the record. All right. Well, so where you were, were you? barely okay, this here. Should, maybe this should say, ago. where were you in December of 1984? And that case, I was a month away from birth, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Sorry, Brian. So, sorry, I didn't mean to date, but that's, that's the question. 35 years ago, 2019, so December 1984, I was in third grade. I was no, not wait a, a minute. That's not right. I was 12. I was in seventh grade. <laughs> that makes sense even worse. Difference. I was in seventth grade, yeah, at uh, Holman Middle School in uh, suburban St. Louis, Missouri. I was not alive. My parents were not yet married. They had met. My parents had met. That's I'm trying to think we what was going on in the world. And I mean, you know, I think that was probably Michael Jackson time with the thriller. The, yeah, thriller and the orange. Cause it was at least around that time anyway. 84 would have been Mary Lou Retton, I think, won the gold medal in the in US Olympics. Um, Ronald Reagan was president. What else was going on? I mean, there were a lot of bright colors. A lot Off of bright colors. Sweaters. I think maybe uh was that around the time it had to be around the time when flash dance happened, right? We're all looking know. to you for this. I know. One, this Brian. Is, I yeah, why are you the, asking I us? I grew up in the '80s, so this is this was pure. This was like if picture Stranger Things. That's what life was like when this happened. The owner of the property found the body along his driveway about ten minutes to six. And you know they break in tonight at ten. Why would the partially clothed body of a young woman be dumped off here of all places? My mom just kind of, oh my God, I think that's Tracy. It is a picture postcard setting, a small town, rural area of Port Washington and Saukville. It's hard to believe that 18-year-old Tracy Hammerberg was found lying across a driveway, murdered. Okay, so it was all the way back in December of 1984 that a murder mystery began in Ozaki County. Body of 18-year-old Tracy Hammerberg was found in a private driveway in the town of Grafton, and she had been raped and beaten to death. 
Investigators finally got a break in the case earlier this year, and on October 22nd, the Ozaki County Sheriff broke the news. After almost 35 years, we had found the person that had brutally raped, strangled, and bludgeoned Tracy Hammerberg to death. So this was a case that really rattled the city of Port Washington and surrounding communities when it happened. As a former Ozaki County Sheriff's Lieutenant once told me in an interview, murder was extremely uncommon in Ozaki County in 1984. It just didn't happen. But this wasn't just any murder. It was the brutal rape, strangulation, and beating of a Port Washington high school teenager. So how was she found, and did investigators have suspects right off the bat? Well, so she was found uh, in a rural driveway south of Sockville. Some people waking up uh, find her body in this driveway at about 6.30 in the morning. Her clothes were mostly off. Her head was bloody. She'd clearly been raped and beaten to death. But there was no murder weapon left behind. If you think typically in these kind of situations, police, investigators, they're going to look at a boyfriend or maybe other male companions who might have been with the person the night of the murder. Did police know where she'd been or who she'd been with before this happened? Well, through interviews, they were able to put together a pretty good picture of where she'd been the day and the evening before the murder took place. She'd been babysitting in Sockville. She lived in Sockville, been babysitting nearby. Went to a gas station that evening after she got done with babysitting, told some friends, hey, we're going to this party in Port Washington tonight, looking forward to it. She ends up going to a party. It's a house party on Garfield Avenue or Garfield Street uh, in Port Washington. She's uh, playing quarters with friends, uh, drinking with a group of people, including some male friends known to police to be involved in drug activity. But around midnight, shortly after midnight, she leaves the party, and that's where her trail goes cold. Police get varying accounts from the people at the party as to how she left. Did she leave in a car? Did she walk? Did she go this way? Did she go that way? But the best they could tell... For all these years, they've believed she walked home from Port Washington to Sockville, which is about a four-mile walk. And you think, okay, it's cold out. It's December. There's snow on the ground. Would she really walk that far? Well, Tracy was known to do that. She was known to take this long walk back and forth from Port to Sockville. She was also, though, known to either hitch rides with friends or sometimes with strangers. And for all these years, no one ever came forward to say they saw her walking or that they saw her get into anyone else's car. So that makes it tough. Did investigators ever zero in on any likely suspects? This was one of those cases where they thought they were going to solve this pretty quickly because they had so many possible suspects. There was a boyfriend whose class ring was still on her finger when her body was found. One of her best friends who she'd been seen with, I think, in the days leading up to this. Um, of course, the young men she was partying with that night uh, who had some police and law enforcement issues of their own. Her stepfather was even a suspect uh, for a time because he'd been accused of tr uh, molesting Tracy's sister. So that was just the beginning. There, the body where, she, where the body was found in the driveway, the people who lived there, some of them were known to have police contacts uh, because of uh, the drug world. So Tracy was known to sort of be wrapped up, uh, known to have been wrapped up in the sort of party world. She'd done drugs, things like that. So they had all these possible suspects. And more importantly, they had semen recovered from her body. So they figured we're going to get someone and match them pretty quickly. Uh, but it turned out none of these people matched the blood type of the semen that was found on Tracy's body. 
But I thought DNA testing wasn't available then. DNA testing wasn't. They could do sort of blood testing, which is a cruder level of testing. They could eliminate about 98% of the population. And in many of these cases, they eliminated a lot of the suspects. But as time went on and they eliminated suspect after suspect after suspect, DNA technology was progressing. And before long, they had this ability to do a higher level of testing as we know now today to be DNA. And the crime lab continued to test people. What investigators did for years is they would just investigate or interview more and more people, anyone who had connections to Tracy, to the people she was with that night. And they would ask, can we swab you? Can we get a cheek sample? And we want to test you. And many, many people said yes, voluntarily. They didn't have to, but they wanted to help solve this case. This was a very big deal in, in that area at the time. And people wanted to know who did this. So over the years, the crime lab tested, I believe it was more than 400 samples without a match. And that is, to this day, I'm told, the most DNA samples tested for a single cold case in, in the state's history. Investigators never gave up on this case, but after all of that time, they still hadn't found a match. Earlier this year, a new emerging area of forensic science finally gave them a breakthrough and they found who they believe is the killer. And I want to talk about the forensic science in a minute, but first the big question, who was the killer? A gentleman named Philip Cross, and he had been a student at Port Washington High School a few years before Tracy got there. From what investigators could tell in doing interviews more recently with people who would recall these things, they said that they had maybe ridden the school bus together, were a few years apart in school, may have known each other, it doesn't appear they ran in any of the same circles. They didn't have the same circle of friends. He was never really on their radar. Um, but he did ultimately turn out to be the one whose DNA matched the semen that was found. Not only the semen, but something that police had never, or investigators for the sheriff's department had never revealed before. They had uh, DNA from under Tracy's fingernails that showed she had defended herself. Um, and they were able to match both the DNA and the material under her fingernails and the semen to Philip Cross. So they say definitively, he's the man who killed Tracy Hammerberg. And he's no longer alive. That's right. In fact, that's one of the reasons that they were able to make this match. Uh, because Philip Cross went when they, when they were able, and we'll talk about how they matched him, but once they found out this is the guy we want to test, um, they learned that he had died of a drug overdose in 2012. So, they went to the medical examiner's office in Milwaukee County and got the autopsy, and that had DNA. And they were able to take that DNA and match it to the evidence they had from the crime scene, and that's where they got a definitive match that says Philip J. Cross committed this crime. In some ways, it's nice that we have an answer here, but there's also a lot of unanswered questions, too, at the end of the day, because we don't know what happened, how he came across her. Or because he can't tell us. And, the, and the, it's certainly a ton of unanswered questions. And also the sense that there's that he never really faced justice. Um, he wasn't here to be arrested, cuffed, put in prison, interrogated, all those sorts of things. So it, in some ways, is an unsatisfying conclusion for people after all these years. But for Tracy's family and for the community, there's at least finally an answer. As you said, though, what exactly did happen? They don't know she was last seen about 12.30 in the morning. She was found at 6.30 in the morning. What happened in between that time? What we do know is that Philip Cross worked at a factory, Rexnord, in Grafton. And he got off work that night it, in an amount of time that would have allowed him to be in the Port Washington area around the time Tracy got out of this party. 
and, and walked home. Did he go into Port Washington for a drink, as he was known to do, and then encounter her as he was driving back to his home, which was on the way to Sockville? Um, or did he come up Interstate 43 from Grafton and come east toward his home and encounter her as she was walking? At some point along the way, did he see her? Did she flag him down for you know as, to hitch a ride? Did he see her and approach her and say, hey, do you want a lift? Do you want a party? If they did, what happened between that time and 6.30 a.m.? Had they gone somewhere for hours and then eventually he came uh, and, and committed the crime at 6.30 in the morning? What we do know is that his vehicle or a vehicle matching the description of his vehicle was witnessed by two other people in that neighborhood around 6.30 in the morning. They heard him peel out and take off. They saw the vehicle and they wondered what it was and shortly thereafter her body was found. So it appears his car may have – did he commit the crime there? Did he dump her body there? It's not entirely clear. Um, but so, – so what happened in that six-hour window I think will always be a mystery. So we've talked about the who and the what. I want to talk about the how because that's really interesting. How did this breakthrough happen? Well, as I said, they tested all of these DNA samples. Um, and, and the way most criminal cases have been solved through DNA over the years is you either have a suspect, you get their DNA and you match it to evidence, or you have criminals who are arrested for other violent crimes or crimes that require the submission of DNA, and then that DNA matches the evidence that's in a state database. So maybe they commit a new crime years later, their DNA is taken, and they go, now we've got a match. That never happened in this case. Um, what they did, uh, what they were able to do, and this is something that law enforcement across the country is starting to take advantage of, there are researchers out there, genealogists, who want to improve family research by making DNA that people are voluntarily submitting. Things like 23andMe. 23andMe, Ancestry.com, any of those, you're submitting to these tests. By taking one of those tests, I want to be clear, you don't automatically enter your DNA into these public databases. But you can then take the results of those tests and voluntarily upload them to something like GED Match or other websites where you can make your DNA you can opt in, essentially, and make it available to be shared publicly. And the primary purpose for that has been to improve genealogy research, to help people with family histories and, and ancestry and building family trees. But law enforcement obviously sees this as a great opportunity because now there's a rich database of people who will never never have committed crimes, may never commit crimes, but whose DNA can help lead them toward those whose DNA matches stuff they have in evidence. Speaking of families, did you talk to either Tracy's family or Philip's, uh, Philip Cross's family? About I did, this? and actually we're going to be uh, talking to, to more of them as time goes on because we're still looking into this whole question of the technology, and I'll talk about what the family said. But, but in this case, the, it's even hearing that you, know, you sort of know maybe it's a little bit over our heads. I know it's over my head. Um, it sounds like this took weeks' worth of work. Um, what, uh, what law enforcement did with the, with the DNA is they were able to build – they went to an expert who could build a profile out of a little bit of evidence that was left from under the fingernails. They built this DNA profile and uploaded it to one of these public databases, and they didn't find Philip Cross. He wasn't in there. But hmm. what it found was someone who was – and they can tell by – this is something that goes way over my head – something to do with the number of centimorgans of comparison or something. I don't know what it means. But they're able to identify and say, okay, this person is a – approximately, probably a second cousin. So we have a match with your evidence 
and a second cousin in our database. Now the question is, how do we search around that second cousin to find the person who actually matched? So it's not you upload it, ding, instantly you've got your killer. It takes a lot more detective work once you get that initial piece, but it gives you that piece of the puzzle that you did not have before. Yeah, and so they started literally researching and building family trees. And eventually, and one of the things that uh, Sheriff Jim Johnson told me they were looking for all along is someone connected to the second cousin who's spent time in Port Washington. And ultimately, they came across the Cross family, and it was both Philip and his brother who they were zeroing in on, and they eventually... Uh, obviously looked at Philip. And I think it was probably because Philip's DNA was available to them because of his death. And then they make the test and they find out. Um, When Once they'd made this match, once they knew they had enough information that they were going to release this publicly, um, Sheriff Johnson called me uh, about a week before they were going to release this to the public. Because 10 years ago, the Sheriff's Department had come to Fox 6 News and said, we want you to do a story about this case. It's been 25 years we want to get it back out there. We want to generate leads, maybe tips. And we did a big story on this. We looked at the entire case file. We interviewed a lot of people and we put that out there. So they wanted to give us sort of a little heads up on this so we could put together another story about the resolution. And at the time they reached out to us, they hadn't yet spoken to both families. They were still trying to make contact. And one of the people they were trying to make contact with uh, was uh, was Jennifer Lubke, who we interviewed 10 years ago, um, they couldn't get a hold of her right away. They did reach her biological sister who lives in Nebraska. I spoke to her as well. They were extremely grateful that this has finally been resolved. But as we were discussing, there's a, a sort of mixed feelings that Philip Cross isn't here to face justice, at least not on this earth. How did the Cross family react? Well, and that was interesting because the day of the news conference, we start to promote that there's going to be a live stream of the news conference at 2 p.m. This was Tuesday, October 22nd. So the word is out there that there's been a major development and people in the Ozaki County area in particular are buzzing that mm-hmm. this case has been solved and they want to know who did it and what happened. So everybody's talking about it. And there was a comment sent to our Facebook page and then a private a message sent to me by Philip Cross's sister that said, this is my brother. By then she'd been told. She said, this was, or I'm sorry, not my brother, my mm-hmm. father. She mm-hmm. says, this was my father. And her initial comment was, he, co- he couldn't have done this. He's been dead seven years. Why are they dredging this up now? Why are they trying to pin it on my dad? It couldn't have been him. He would never have done something like this. And I, I reached out and I said, I-, I can't imagine what it's like to find something like this out about a family member, I'd be happy to talk to you and let you share any of your concerns on the air. And she said, I, I want to think about it. I want to see this news conference first. And the news conference happens at 2 o'clock, and they lay out everything they've learned about Philip Cross, not just that they believe he committed this murder, but that years after this murder, he had, in fact, uh, been reported by a woman to have tried to strangle her with a belt out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. They were driving. He stopped the car. He put a belt around her neck and tried to strangle her. She went and told police. He told a different story and nothing came of it. There were other cases involving uh, violence and that he had a, a terrible temper. His coworkers had said he had an awful temper. And as they laid out this case, she's watching and she texted me privately. And I don't want to reveal what she texted because I don't want to invade her privacy. Um, she didn't agree to have this put on television. But to say the least, she was learning along with everyone else about a person she never knew. She knew that her father had been a drug addict. She knew that her father had an alcohol problem. He'd been repeatedly arrested for drunk driving and drug charges. But she thought he was 
an addict. She didn't know he was a killer. She didn't know he had these other compulsions. And so very difficult thing, I'm sure, for the Cross family to deal with, um, while at times a relief for Tracy Hamberberg's family to know there'd been a resolution to the case. You know, it's interesting. At the beginning of all this, we were talking about, you know, 35 years. It's a long time. We were lightheartedly speaking about it, but to wait for answers for 35 years and not know what was happening to their loved one much been, must have been really difficult for well, the family. Well, and that's part of the reason why I know we were having a little fun with it at the top, but that's part of the reason I wanted to talk about that at the beginning is how long ago this was. Mm-hmm. Because when you really think, when you say 35 years, it's easy to just hear, oh, it was a long time. How long? It was a lifetime. Mm-hmm. It was so long ago that for many of Tracy's family members, they died not knowing who the killer was or, or her friends. Um, interestingly enough, when you look at the timeline too, we did this story in 2010, um, February of 2010, just after the 25th anniversary of the murder. And I remember one of the detectives saying to me, we just want someone who's out there watching this. Maybe this is weighing on their conscience. Maybe they have those visions in their head of what they did and they just can't live with it anymore. Come tell us, come forward. And they were hoping that that would, that would bring either a wit- an eyewitness forward, someone who'd been confided in, or the killer themselves. He was, uh, he died in 2012, mm-hmm. which means that Philip J. Cross was living in Milwaukee alive when we ran that story. And there's a decent chance he saw that story. When I talked to Tracy's sister, uh, she said she hopes he saw it. She hopes he saw it. She hopes that maybe that weighed on him even further and and that while he didn't come forward, maybe in some ways he was facing his own inner justice. So where do things go from here? When we talk about DNA testing, there have already been concerns raised about privacy, but also there's a lot of hope with the future of this testing and what it can mean for police work. Well, when you look at the the forensic genealogy, there's, there's a whole unit of the FBI now focused on forensic, forensic genetic genealogy. It's something the Wisconsin Crime Lab uh, said at the news conference that they want to become more educated in. They don't do this work yet, but they want to. Um, the Golden State Killer was caught through forensic genetic genealogy. So it's a very exciting area for law enforcement in terms of solving cold case homicides. And I'm sure there's other law enforcement applications, but it has raised ethical concern, ethical questions and privacy concerns. For one, just for people who are volunteering their DNA to be uploaded to these databases, maybe some of those people don't want their DNA to be used to help solve crimes. Maybe they don't want to out a cousin or a second cousin who's committed a crime. And you could have the debate about, well, hey, if your second cousin committed murder, maybe you ought to be helping, but it's your decision. That's your DNA. And you also give up a lot of rights to your DNA, even when you submit it to be tested in many cases. So besides the actual voluntary upload, I don't think a lot of people realize what they're agreeing to when they submit their DNA. Just a month or so ago, we attended the uh, Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences Symposium at Northwestern University, and it was something that's created by uh, people like um, you know Dean Strang from Making a Murderer, Stephen Avery case, um, uh, people involved in the O.J. Simpson trial. These are uh, mostly criminal defense experts who say, wait a minute, forensic science needs to have limits and boundaries and it needs to be, uh, you know, vetted and that sort of thing. I remember someone at that symposium who had a, uh, an ancestry.com or a 23andMe packet and he said, I've thrown this away. I'm not submitting my DNA. I don't want, so there, there are certainly people who are concerned about how this s- sort of information that's meant to be used for 
genealogical family research purposes could be used, in, in fact, by law enforcement. I think we're still in the Wild West phase when it comes to determining where are the limits and boundaries of how this information can be used. I was looking at, um, I think it was, might have been GED Match, might have been one of the other sites, in their terms and conditions. And they've highlighted in red, because you look, anytime you see terms and conditions, you go, I'm not going to, yeah, except I just want to do the thing. But if you read through it, they've highlighted some of this text in red to draw attention to the fact that this can be used or accessed by law enforcement. And if you don't want it to be, you can opt out. Um, There are ways to do that. But if you want it to be used for these good public purposes, just be aware it could also be used potentially by law enforcement. There may be options to sort of have a public sharing that's blocked from law enforcement. Some of those things are still in development. Um, I know some attorneys general are starting to set uh, guidelines as to how forensic genealogy can be used in solving crimes. That hasn't happened yet here in Wisconsin that I'm aware of, but it's probably going to be something we're going to hear a lot more about. And this is something we're continuing to investigate and we'll be talking more about, um, you know, in, in, in an up, you know, future investigation. That's the dinner bell, which means it's time for our dinner party question. This is a weekly segment where we answer questions we most often get asked as journalists at parties or events or when we're out and about. Here's the catch. We have no idea what the question is. There are several envelopes in front of us. I'm going to pick one at random. You know, the script (laughs) says there are several envelopes. We're down to two people. We need questions. Does two count as several? Sue Polson, you need to send us some questions. Yes, please. You, right. you know, you have my email, you have my text, you can do it. But it's then I would know, I guess she can't send it to me. She can't because then I would know the questions. She's got to find out how to reach Leanne Watson. All right, so here's the question. Journalists get to do things most citizens never think about. Tell us about an experience that stands out in your career. I, hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things I do that I don't think the average person does, I, like sitting in a minivan outside someone's house for eight hours trying to decide, do I drink the Diet Coke I got at McDonald's knowing that I'm going to have to use the bathroom (laughs) or do I just sit here thirsty? I think that's – I don't think the average person has to face that. You don't think the average person sits in a van and stakes out? No, and and, you know the thing is if you imagine – I've talked about this before, but if you imagine it's like in the movies where there's this nice big van with comfortable seats and heating or air conditioning and – Live streams on TV. Yeah, no, there's nothing like that. You're – like imagine whatever minivan you have if you store groceries in the back and you go, okay, well, what if I just sat cramped on the floor of that for eight hours? How would that feel? Yeah, uh, well, it's not fun. No, what you said though, when I was a journalist assignment reporter, journal, when I was a journalist, journalist assignment, assignment reporter, what you said when I was a general assignment reporter, I wouldn't drink water the entire shift just because I didn't know when I would get to use a bathroom. So I trained myself not to drink any water for eight hours. <laughs> when we say this out decision. loud, I'm realizing how concerning great. it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do have an experience that stands out that I would never have gotten to do otherwise. Um, about ten years ago. Uh, I did a story. They were allowing people to rappel off the side of Lambeau Field. And every now and then a journalist gets to do that. So I was the one that got to go and do the story. So I put on all the equipment and I walked up to the top of the roof of Rambo. Like, do you have a heights thing or were you okay with it? Um, 
I'm not afraid of heights. I don't like ledges. Like if I'm ever that's up, a very yeah, specific isn't that fear. Related? It's like I know they're the same. Like I don't mind being on the top of the building. I don't like to go within a couple feet of the edge. Fair. I you know I get scared, but um, I'm surprised I did it. Looking back on it, and I was trying to act really brave the whole time. Like I wasn't totally freaking out on the inside and trying not to shake. But the first step back is really hard. Mm-hmm. Where they tell you to get on the top, and then you lean you lean backward over the edge and you kind of are trusting that the ropes are going to work. Executive producer Leanne is just shaking her head no as she listens to yeah, this. Right. It and was, she's an adventurous person, I think. But yeah, no, that one, no, that lean back and sounds No, and it's all concrete down there. It's not like there was some So of course you're thinking about the me. worst case scenario because that's right. what we typically report on is True. the weird freak accident. Right. And you just have to trust everybody knows what they're doing. But I would never have done that. I would never have volunteered to do that. I'm never going to jump out of a plane. If I if I can help it, I'm not that kind of adventure seeker. Um, but I thought that was pretty cool. I would never have done that otherwise. Having been a morning show reporter, I was in similar situations where you're rappelling down the mm-hmm. side of a building and you're doing those other. Actually, I did that in a live shot, and it was they're counting me down before the live shot, and I'm on the edge. I have to lean back, and I'm going, nope, I can't do it. I can't do it. And they're like, you're in four, three, <laughs> two, and right as they hit one was when I did it. And I don't even remember what I said during that live hit. I was speaking very quickly. My voice was very high pitched. It was a, that was, that was a scary live shot. So there were definitely some of those thrill seeking moments. I think just when it comes to investigative reporting, we're often in situations most people don't find themselves in. I mean, how often are you going to confront someone with a camera and microphone about something they did uh, or the fact that they won't talk to you? How often are you in real life realistically going to go through thousands of pages of records? I don't know or... if that's a get to do. <laughs> For me, it's a get to more do. Like of a yeah. And we will talk do. about that in a future episode. But, you know, even just everything we get to learn. You kind of have to know a little about a lot in order to do this job well, except for investigative reporting in which you have to take deep dives into still a wide variety of topics. And so getting to have that well-rounded perspective is valuable. And you're always thinking about not just what do I think about this, but how would this person think about this? What questions does this person have? You're just kind of always in that mode. And I think that spills over into other areas of life. And I don't know that the average person has to be thinking about that many aspects of one situation. I was thinking about how often we encounter just every part of the community you cover. That's true. Because I, you know, people who've lived here their entire lives, I moved here to Wisconsin in 2004 I've visited every neighborhood and every community here. I've been to, you know, everything from a city council meeting in the town of, you know, name it, nowhere, to, um, to you know, to interviewing the mayor of Milwaukee. And you're driving through various neighborhoods and you get to experience, um, you know, all different aspects of life. But I, I feel like you just get to know the neighborhoods and where things are. Whereas if you work in a job... People who've lived here their whole lives maybe working a job in one place and, and they hang out with people in another. And unless maybe they're going down to see the Bucks at the, you know, Pfizer or they're going to a particular restaurant, they may not have a reason to drive to Pewaukee and then, the, you know, then Sheboygan and then to downtown Milwaukee. So we get to see a lot. 
If you have a question you want the open record team to answer, let us know. We are down to our final envelope. So whether you're Brian's mom or anyone else, please send us some questions. Shoot us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. That's theinvestigators at fox6now.com. Thank you for listening to Open Record. We would like to also thank the people behind the scenes making this podcast happen. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and Leanne Watson. If you enjoy listening, let us know. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to check out Fox 6's other podcast, Definitely Milwaukee with Carl Deffenbaugh. And if you want more Open Record, just head to our website, fox6now.com. Fox 6 Now.